Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill Bant. Bill, I'm elated. I'm excited. I am thrilled to announce that on today's episode, we have yet another guest joining us. That's right. We have Dayton Johnson joining us from the Docking Bay 77 podcast. Welcome, Dayton. Well, wow. I don't know how I can follow up that introduction. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm super excited to be here, guys. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Dayton, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the Docking Bay 77 podcast? Uh, sure thing. I like to consider myself a full-time podcaster that has to have a day job. Uh, my day job is uh, I'm a mail carrier for the United States Postal Service. I'm happily married and we have a grown daughter. And like her, I, I was a big TV kid, grew to love movies, music, and entertainment in general. Went to college and studied how to uh, do production for radio and television. That career path didn't work out so great. So we're going to fast forward about 30 years, and uh, the podcast bug bit me, thanks to our mutual friends, Jeff and Brad, from the Film By podcast. Yes. I did some episodes with them, and I decided to start my own. Now, I'm lucky, and if people have checked us out, and when they do check us out, I am super blessed to have so many friends that can geek out about a lot of different things and have a lot of great conversations. We've covered you know, a lot of different things. We mostly hit music and movies, but we've discussed comic books, classic arcade games, um, and we've even covered a book and we're getting ready to do another, some more books later on. Some stuff coming up for July, we're doing our top seven songs of the 70s. 100th episode is coming too. We're going to cover Almost Famous from Cameron Crowe, which is an awesome movie, one of my favorites. Yes. Uh, we're also going to do an episode crossover with the guys from the Shirley Can't Be Serious podcast. We're going to cover Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And to finish off the month, we are going to kick off a new series of episodes focusing on the music from 1976, and we're opening it up with a Jailbreak from Thin Lizzy. So we have a lot of different topics we'd like to hit. Wow. Great. That is incredible, Dayton. Uh, by the way, I, I just saw, I think one of your more recent, if maybe not the most recent episode, your top seven movie scores. Is that correct? Yes, that just dropped, actually. Yeah, uh, I can't wait month. to yeah. listen to the, that one. By any chance, yeah, that was a lot is of there fun. any... Uh, any uh, John Williams in there? Can you can you spoil that much? <laughs> there were a couple of us. Uh, well, I actually purposely did not put him on my list because I thought that'd be more of a challenge. I had a feeling. I had a feeling. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have a couple people to put him, them uh, put Williams on their list, so we got him covered. Right. There was no no doubt about that. <laughs> uh, that's great, and I'm glad you gave a shout out to a film by and surely you can't be serious podcasts. They're fantastic, and we look forward to hopefully. Uh, working with them again in the future because um, they're just great. So it's a, it's a really, really great community amongst all of us and, and all the other film pods out there. It's a great community. So absolutely, yeah. listen to Docking Bay 77, everybody. Dayton and crew, they're great. It's a big crew. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Dayton Johnson. Yes. You know, I was just going on and gushing about you and the other podcasts, but I appreciate you sharing. I really do. But the simple fact is, my friend, we need to know more. That wasn't enough. So we came up with a list of rapid fire questions to ask you. Are you ready? Uh, sure. Let's go. <laughs> you don't sound so sure, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> what was the first movie you ever saw in the theater, Dayton? Uh, I can say the first movie I remember seeing was Disney's The Jungle Book. 
Very good. Very concise. I appreciate it. This is definite, <laughs> you're you're sticking to the rapid fire format. I I like to to break break format, but uh, we'll just keep going. Can you give us a quick review of the last movie you saw? Oh sure, yeah. Uh, I saw the Fablemans. Oh man, what a uh, wonderful movie! I actually consider it some of Spielberg's best work. It's a truly great coming of age story that really focuses on people uh, and the relationships that shape us. Super well paced, even though it was two and a half hours long, and it hit a lot of perfectly placed emotional notes. And it was nice to see Spielberg stepping out of his comfort zone almost. You know, it didn't feel like a lot of his other stuff. So I really, really enjoyed it. Outstanding. Yeah, I have yet to check that one out. Uh, I'll be waiting for that to come out on streaming for free. (laughs) Uh, I'm in the middle of the first hour of Avatar 2 now, since that was just released. But uh, we don't have time for my review on that quite yet, of course, since I'm not finished with it anyway. (laughs) Dayton, what is your go-to snack food when watching a movie? Okay, for a long time, it was nachos with a soda and a side of Sour Patch Kids. But now it's been pretty much uh, the classic popcorn. The old standby. Yep. Hey, man, who is your favorite actor and or actress? Oh, I got to go with Gary Oldman. Not only is he a favorite of mine, but as far as I'm concerned, I think he's the greatest actor of my lifetime. Wow. High praise. And it is, I mean, absolutely appropriate uh gary oldman is the man have you watched or checked out slow horses by any chance on apple tv i have not yet no i have not i just started watching it and of course he's wonderful last question dayton yes what is your favorite movie of all time it might sound like a cheat but i'm gonna go with star wars i saw it in 77 on my seventh birthday and i've been a fan ever since not only did it really help my uh, help me fall in love with movies, but honestly, you know, like a lot of people said before me, it's changed cinema forever. Couldn't agree more. That's not a cheat on this show. We'll take it. Accept <laughs> right. it. So Dayton, some great answers. Uh, let's get to it. Uh, why don't you tell us about the 80s movies you chose for us to discuss today? Sure thing. I chose Three O'Clock High, released in 1987, starring Casey Simesco, Annie Ryan, Richard Tyson, Jeffrey Tambor, and Philip Baker Hall, directed by Phil Janu. All right. Excellent choice. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Jerry Mitchell is having one of those days. He's late for high school, his car has a flat tire, and he's been sent to the dean's office. But worst of all, he's incurred the wrath of the feared new student, Buddy Revell, the biggest, meanest, downright nastiest guy in class who forces him into a fight at 3 p.m. in the school parking lot. Poor Jerry is just seven hours, a good supply of wit, a few friends, a savvy kid sister, and the worst luck of any kid alive to find a way out of his tough problem. As the clock ticks away and the suspense mounts, Jerry realizes there's no way he can avoid facing the muscle-bound bully in a fight that will probably be his last. It's Brain Against Brawn in one of today's best contemporary teenage comedies, Three O'Clock High. Three O'Clock High. So Dayton, please let us know why you chose Three O'Clock High for today's episode. Well, uh, this is actually one of my favorite high school movies of all time. Uh, In fact, it was actually on uh, my top five high school movies list, which was actually our very first episode on the podcast. It was one of those that was always on cable and I watched it, I think, every time it came on. There's a lot in this movie that kind of resonated with me. I related to Jerry in quite a few ways. 
I worked in the school newspaper, you know, I was bullied like he was. Uh, I had a crush on the popular girl that really didn't care about me most of the time until, you know, apparently, you know, <laughs> like in the movie, somebody threatens my life and suddenly I become interesting. Most of uh, my friends were the band kids. They were the nerds. They were the ones that are on the periphery of being cool. So I could totally have been one of Jerry's friends. I also like the movie was different from its peers, so to speak, a bit darker in tone, uh, definitely darker than most of the John Hughes movies at the time. I didn't feel like the authority figures were characters like in most of Hughes movies. They kind of felt like they're almost based on actual people that maybe the writers and the director knew from their high school experience. And um, the filmmaker did a great job, I thought, in showing us a more realistic look at a truly bad day at school. So, yeah, I totally love the fight scene at the end. Uh, I kind of consider it one of the more realistic fights of the 80s for sure. And like I said, every time it was on cable, I sat down and didn't matter what I was doing and watched it. I probably rented it at least two or three times and it's always been a favorite of mine. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Jason, do you have any initial thoughts about three o'clock high? Oh, you know, I do, Bill. I know. But I was just going to say some great <laughs> thoughts there, Dane. Thanks for sharing, man. I totally relate to your relatability to this film. Uh, and here's <laughs> well, some you. quick early memories of mine, which are just coincide with some of what Dayton just said. I mean- all the push-in close-ups on the ticking clock, right. the stress, the tension. Richard Tyson, man, as Buddy Ravel, just being extremely intimidating. And the brass knuckles, of course. I mean, I whenever I hear the title of this movie, I imagine brass knuckles. I watched this, or at least part of it, like Dayton, several times on cable in the late 80s, early 90s. I put it in our under-the-radar movies of the 80s mini-sode here on our podcast because I just felt there wasn't enough discussion about it presently but here we are and yeah speaking of the cast man casey samasco richard tyson jeffrey tambor philip baker hall john p ryan mitch pelleggi is in this and even an appearance by yardley smith how about that it was it who did she voice on the simpsons i just for lisa. lisa 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 yeah. right so to stay with the cast for a moment all the actors in this are just pretty damn good Shout out to Anne Ryan as Franny and uh, Liza Morrow as Karen. Both smaller parts in this are supporting roles, but both very convincing. When Liza invites Jerry to her party, kind of towards the third act of this film, she's so sultry in her subtle delivery. She's great. Anywho, Casey Samasco just had the perfect look for this. Here's an initial thought. The ultimate nice boy next door. He's part plain, part character, part cute boy. Casey Samasco, our protagonist, Jerry Mitchell. Here's his 80s snapshot. He was in a movie called Class, then sec uh, Secret Admirer. He's one of the minor henchmen characters named 3D in Back to the Future. Then he was in the first episode of Amazing Stories entitled The Mission. You know who else was in that episode? Kevin Costner and Kiefer Sutherland. He was also in Stand By Me, 3 O'Clock High, which we're covering right now, Biloxi Blues, Young Guns, and Back to the Future 2. Not a bad 80s for Casey. Moving on to Richard Tyson. In the 80s, he was known for this, 3 O'Clock High, and in 1988 for Two Moon Junction. Oh, yeah. That was on repeat. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. As young men, <laughs> yeah. we remember that one, and it was pretty steamy. <laughs> But I also associate him with being, of course, the bad guy, Crisp, in Kindergarten Cop in 1990. And he's also friends with the Farrelly brothers and pops up in their films like Kingpin, There's Something About Mary and Me, Myself, and Irene. And he's done a ton of straight-to-video B-movies and continues to work prolifically. I'm a fan of this director, guys. Big fan, Phil Genoux. And this is his directorial debut. He's known for directing a couple of Amazing Stories episodes. You're going to hear a lot of crossover here with uh, Spielberg's going to enter this conversation at some point. But between the actors and Phil and uh, Spielberg, he directs this film. Then he goes on to work with U2 a whole bunch. He did Rattle and Hum and a bunch of their videos. He directs a couple other movies like Final Analysis and Heavy Heaven's Prisoners. But I... 
and Bill knows this, love him for directing a little gem from 1990 called State of Grace. It literally is one of my favorites. It's one of my cult classic favorites. That's it with Phil Genoux. The very beginning of this film, guys, is a ton of fun. Jerry Mitchell wakes up late. He needs to get to high school on time to open the student store. You get the sense of energy simply because of the variety of camera shots and techniques. Man, tracking, steady cam, POV, sped up shots, quick close-ups, choreography, following Jerry around the house hurriedly, getting ready for school. My favorite moment being microwaving the T-shirt. Yeah, not T-shirt, but button-down shirt. He's microwaving a shirt and a Hot Pocket. Pop-Tart. Pop-Tart. Thank you. <laughs> yep. My uh, little meals fi- mixed up there. But uh, that's my favorite from that scene, man. Like Dayton was saying, the characters are likable and relatable. I mean, you do get the common stereotypes here at Weaver High. We see the supportive kid sister, Bree, who's also a student at the school. The quirky best friend, a female in this case, Franny. She has a crush on our protagonist. Where have we seen this before? And she's like the self-proclaimed clairvoyant that receives counsel from a friend uh, beyond from beyond named Ethan. And there's Jerry's other best friend, Vincent, who's the editor of the school paper. And now I'm getting echoes of Patrick Dempsey and Courtney Gaines from Can't Buy Me Love when I see the two here together in this film. Then there's the stereotypical pretty blonde girl, which I uh, mentioned, named Karen. We get our teachers, the overzealous security guard, the dictator, dean of discipline. Again, you get your stock characters here. But again, the actors playing these roles are just great. And Dayton said it. There's just kind of a realism and a natural delivery to that these actors just really nail in this. I just think the movie's not trying too hard with these stock characters. or character. They're not characterizations or caricatures of high school kids. And we know Jerry's having a run of bad luck from the get-go, and the movie trusts that those circumstances and set pieces are funny as they are. No need to overdo the performances or make them over the top for the sake of comedy. The kids are just being natural. It does a great job of building up the legend of Buddy Revell, the ultimate bully, uh, who doesn't like to be touched. He's a touch freak. I love that. I just, that's an initial thought. Love that term, a touch freak. Uh, there's all the rumors that he's put a science teacher in the hospital. He broke some kid's neck. He's never lost a fight. He pulled a knife on his football coach. He's in continuation school or he's being transferred from continuation school. And again, doesn't like to be touched. It's nice that they emphasize that a little bit extra in the beginning with a great tracking shot with all through these kids and they're all spreading the rumors. It's just great stuff to do a little character establishment before we even see Buddy. And speaking of Buddy, again, like D- Dane was saying, Buddy's dark, man. When we see his confrontation with Jerry in the bathroom, I'm not going to step on a favorite scene here, but it's violent. That surprised me. There's there's an initial thought. I was like, oh, damn. He goes right at Jerry, that poor kid, Richard Tyson's delivery. When he's like, you try and run. I'm going to track you down. You go to a teacher. It's only going to get worse. You sneak home. I'm going to be under your bed. Oh my God, dude. Yeah. I, you know, a major character in the film itself is the time. The time constraint is always a great device for building tension and anxiety. And they do a great job of reminding you that the clock is always ticking. Have to mention The Tangerine Dream soundtrack. I mean, very reminiscent of classic 80s movies, uh, especially Risky Business, uh, especially in the book report scene. It's so great. Little echoes of Joel and Lana from Risky Business. Dayton mentioned Philip Baker Hall is in this, playing Detective Mulvahill. What a great name. And uh, Philip Baker Hall may be a little thinner in this, but he looks exactly the same as he does for the next 30 years. That's right. There's some great smoking in school in this movie. And that's when we like to say on this podcast, ah, yeah, that was the 80s. <laughs> it's a very simple, straightforward movie. But for me, gentlemen, so entertaining. It's not perfect. 
for me personally, the pacing lose a little, loses a little steam somewhere between the second and third act. The characters and relationships might be a little bit on the surface, but the movie works because it is, it knows what it is. Everything's built in, meaning the archetypes, tropes. We already have an understanding of that. We've seen these movies before. We know that. We get it. And we definitely relate to Jerry, as Dayton said, which is important. So outside of this, the movie knows that we, the audience, only want to know, is he going to fight? Is he going to win or lose? Is he going to survive? And how is he going to handle the day inside of school leading up to that fight? We get some great scenarios. The hijinks ensue, and that's it. So I still think this movie is a blast. That's my initial thought as an adult revisiting this film. It's really, really well shot. It's really well shot, well performed. I still am surprised it wasn't a bigger thing in the 80s. I'm not saying that this was Ferris Bueller's day off. I'm not going to go there. I'm just saying I'd still put it in my top 10. Dayton said top five. I respect that completely. But I definitely put in my top 10 80s high school coming of age movies because I like to watch a character overcome their fears and I'm a sucker for a good underdog story, just like everyone else. Bill Bant, how about your initial thoughts? So I did not see this in the theater. I didn't even rent it, but I remember seeing it at our local video store. I never heard of the movie or recognized anyone in it, so it was a pass for me. I eventually caught it on cable, and it was quite a surprise. Going through high school myself at the time, we certainly didn't have anyone like Buddy Ravel at my school, but we certainly had fights after school. They weren't in the parking lot. They were under the bridge. So the back half of my high school was surrounded by a wooded area, and there was a path that circled the school, and it led to more like a tunnel that went under the street so you can continue through the woods. That's where the fights happened. Luckily, there wasn't that many, and luckily, I was never involved in one. But to imagine if I was going to be one and it was against someone that I knew was going to kick my ass. This movie was a great representation of it. I mean, poor Jerry, just at the wrong place at the wrong time. This fight was going to happen and nothing was going to stop it. No matter how hard he tried, he was not getting out of it. So looking back at this movie, I only remember the genesis of the fight, Don't Touch Buddy, and the conclusion with Jerry coming out on top. So it was good to revisit this movie. Some initial thoughts. Did I hear a little John Williams score from uh, Jaws in this? Yes, it was. And that was cool. I picked that up right away. The character that I actually enjoyed the most that wasn't a main character from the movie was uh, Brie, Jerry's little sister. At first, I thought she was going to be your stereotypical sibling that doesn't get along with the main character or someone they use for laughs. But not in this case. She actually gets along with Jerry and is trying to look out for his well-being. There's a scene where she finds out that Jerry took the money from the school store to pay Craig to get Buddy off his back. She doesn't judge Jerry for doing that. She actually sympathizes with him. Maybe I need to show this movie to my kids to show how brother and sister can get along. The fight was still good. Not like the terrifying fights I now see online when kids try to curb stomp someone when they are down. In our day, if you got knocked down, drew blood, and said you had enough, kids stepped in and stopped it. Now, they just web out their phones and record the whole thing instead pathetic. This was a fun rewatch and I'm ready to get into it. So let's start with some favorite scenes or moments. Dayton, why don't you start us off? What are some of your favorite scenes or moments from three o'clock high? Well, the first thing I want to mention is more of a series of moments that do a great job in building tension for our hero, Jerry. In uh, his first class, after being challenged to the fight, they're watching a film on the crab scorpion stalking the defenseless cricket. Uh, the science film is working on Jerry's fears already, and he keeps looking back and forth. He's getting harassed by the two wannabe filmmakers, and he just he panics. I love it. I love it. It's a great, already 
We're working on his fear. We're already seeing his future. So I love that. So later, before and after the fire drill, Jerry is listening to his Western Civ teacher go on about Achilles destroying Hector on the battlefield. So there he is hearing again, oh my God, this is my future. This is what's coming. And it's it's freaking him out. And he just looks terrified sitting in that class. So a little bit later, I love the subtle nod to a big guy killing a helpless being with buddy reading of mice and men. So I think that was well-placed and very smart. The transition when they go to the pep rally, Jerry's face uh, transitions to the drumhead getting beaten, which is fun and a little bit dark and disturbing, but I like it. Then you have the effigy of the other team getting beaten and decapitated and the head lands right in front of Jerry. Oh my God, could anything else happen to this poor guy? And then, as Jason mentioned earlier, the clock. They add in these well-placed shots of the clock throughout the whole thing. You have the ticking sound and all these pieces together just keep making it more intense. And you can totally see the expressions on Jerry's face get worse and more filled with fear. I just love those subtle things that I know the first few times I watched it, I didn't really pick up on. I just thought it was funny. But on a rewatch, I'm like, man, they really were working the tension with those great little moments, you know, and I think it's great. I had that written down, the omens. <laughs> Any class he goes into, there's some kind of sign that he's in deep shit at three o'clock. And <laughs> I, I think my favorite one was the cheerleaders beating the crap right. out. Yeah, because just the reactions, they're beating this dummy and all this red confetti that's supposed to be blood yeah. is just spraying everywhere. And then the fact the head lands next to him and he totally freaks out. Yeah, I, I love all the omens throughout the film. It is great stuff. Yeah, Man, this movie made me laugh it just gets me and when you mentioned yes the history teacher is speaking of achilles throwing a spear through hector's throat and you get such a great reaction from casey samasco he just like hangs his head over the desk like are you kidding me is this what is happening right now and then they cut back to that same teacher later on and she's talking about how achilles was dragging hector's body through the streets and it was being torn apart by dogs it's like oh my god it's yeah I'm glad you called that out, Dayton, all those, uh, well, as Bill puts it, omens. Yeah, some great right. stuff. Good catch with the, uh, I didn't think about the beating drum. That's a good yeah, call. I, I didn't think about that. Subtle. It's one of my favorites because I play drums. So the idea of uh, when I used to get really angry, I would picture somebody's face or my snare drum. And that's kind of how I got the <laughs> some aggression out. But wow. yeah, I just love it. Awesome. I, I'm, I'm loving the fact that this film is a bit therapeutic for you, Dayton. That's what I thought. <laughs> Maybe a little cathartic. It it's like a cathartic experience. Bill, are you are you okay for me to, to kick into a favorite scene of mine? Yeah, as long as you don't steal mine, that's fine. Go go for it. Well, I'm calling my first favorite scene the Duker. Is that is it my stealing your scene, Bill? No, you're not. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure one of you guys were gonna take my first one, so I'm impressed. All right. The Duker. So up to this point, we know Buddy Ravel has challenged Jerry Mitchell to a fight in the school parking lot at 3 p.m. Jerry has tried a few ways of getting out of this. One, talking to Buddy at his locker. That was a no-go. Two, his friend Vincent decides to be proactive and plants a switchblade in Buddy's locker and leaves a note on Mr. O'Rourke's desk. Now, can you answer a question for me here, gentlemen? Is Mr. O'Rourke the principal? That was one confusing point for me. Or is he just... I mean, he's an authority figure in this film of some sort. He's, a, I think he's principal. Yeah. Okay. They just never call him the principal, but it's just understood. Okay. So I'm going to take it back just a moment. Number two, his friend Vincent plants the switchblade in Buddy's locker and leaves a note on Mr. O'Rourke's desk in an effort to frame Buddy and have him kicked out. Well, that doesn't work. 
And we know it doesn't work because after a freaky anxiety-inducing pep rally, Jerry rushes outside to his car. It's actually his mom's car. And he's just ready to get the hell out of there. And when he gets in the car, he sees a switchblade stuck through a written note into the steering wheel. And the note reads, there is no escape. The bell rings at 3 p.m. Be there. So Jerry's just like, what the hell? Buddy's been inside the vehicle and has left him a note. Jerry tries to start the car, but absolutely nothing happens. He opens the hood and sees the ignition. Wires have been cut. Well, that's just perfect. So now Jerry takes the switchblade and the note. It's on his person. And he begins walking through the parking lot uh, a little hurriedly. And when he runs into security officer Duke on his motorized security cart, Duke says, where are you heading for, son? Uh, nowhere, really. And the security guard is none other than Mitch Pileggi, also known as Walter Skinner for the X-Files heads out there. And it appears he's got a wad of chew in his craw. I don't, it's just great. And he's got that bald head. You can't miss. I mean, it's Mitch Pileggi through and through. And he says, uh, looks to me you were heading off campus. You've got a pass. And Jerry says, no. Duke says, why don't you go to the office? And Jerry replies, well, that would have been a good idea. I'll go there right now. Then Duke just pulls up to him in his security cart and offers him a ride to which Jerry quickly declines, which makes him look even more suspicious. So Duke tries to grab him and Jerry runs off and up some stairs, but is stymied by this locked fence, which he tries to climb over. But Duke catches up to him, drags him down, frisks him very aggressively and finds the switchblade, of course. And now Jerry tries to show him the note that he'd gotten from Buddy, but Duke takes one look at it, crumples it up. One of my favorite moments, crumples it up, throws it down, and we see the wind just grab it and carry it away with a it's like oh my god nothing goes Jerry's way in this at all and that's just like an exclamation point on it just the the note goes flying away like that's it that basically is a microcosm of the whole thing here for Jerry now Duke takes Jerry to Delinsky's office and Delinsky is the dean of discipline oh my god and they go in and Duke says caught this one trying to ditch the rally after a routine search for narcotics, I found this. And he throws the switchblade onto Delinsky's desk. Delinsky says he'll take it from there. And then Duke points at Jerry and says, you tell all your little friends there's no escaping the Duker. You got that? Good. Ah, and I just cracked up, man. I love Mitch Pileggi. He takes this small supporting role and runs with it. He doesn't go way over the top. But he knows what kind of movie he's in. He knows it's a comedy and he is playing the comedy of it. And he's just an overzealous security guard. And you could tell like probably has maybe, I don't know, military background or something. He just seems really rigid and plays it by the rules, right? By the book. And he's very proud of himself for catching this, just this meek kid, (laughs) this high school kid, this innocent kid, uh, this straight A student and calling himself, he calls himself the Duker, which is just my, my favorite because it's, it sounds awful. But of course, he thinks it's awesome. So yeah, that's my first favorite scene. I love when he says that line about the Duker, because it almost seems like it's his first day there on the job. And it's almost like a, a Batman moment, like, tell all your friends about me. I'm the Duker. <laughs> you know, like it's supposed to be spreading <laughs> fear throughout the school. I just lost. I'm like, everybody knows who you are, dude. Okay. <laughs> They've been there. God knows how long. But I think they set this scene. It's like October or it's very early in the school year. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure the Duker has been around for a while. And he just thinks it's so cool. <laughs> like it's so badass. I'm the oh, Duker. Yeah, I love his uh, his look, his attitude, the wannabe highway patrolman, you know, with his glasses and everything. Oh, yeah. He, he probably couldn't make the cops, you know, so he's going to be a high school security guard instead. It's like, how many times did you fail the police academy, my friend? <laughs> right. <laughs> 
All right. So for me, my first favorite scene, thank you so much for not stealing this one. And I'm sorry if you had this one on your list. It is Jerry gives a book report. So Jerry uh, is going to uh, Miss Farmer's class. And at this point, he's in deep trouble. He's tried a whole bunch of stuff that we've kind of mentioned to try to get out of this fight and nothing is working and he is desperate. So his sister Bree tells him that the only way out of this fight is to go to detention, which wouldn't have worked at my school because we did detention in the morning, but <laughs> I regress. Anyway, Miss Farmer wants the students to present book reports to the class and she's looking for volunteers. Yo. Jerry decides he will go first, and while he's walking up the aisle, he snags a pair of sunglasses and a pack of cigarettes from some of his fellow students. He gets to the front of the class, spits out some gum, and starts talking about why should he be giving book reports? Because then students won't read it. It promotes illiteracy. So Miss Farmer stops him right there and asks if Jerry actually did read a book, and Jerry just starts laughing in her face. You know, trying anything he can to try to get detention. But he says, yeah, I read a book. And he starts giving his report. The name of the book that Jerry decides to do his book report on is Honey Goes to Hollywood. Uh, Miss Farmer seems a little interested in the title of this book. And Jerry lights a cigarette in front of the class and starts to give his report. It's a real good read. Fast, angry, sexual. I was thinking about the syntax and how it affects the overall mood particularly in the more exploratory passages in the fifth chapter when Honey meets the whole Australian soccer team. And while he's walking in the room explaining this, he goes, Honey reminds him of Miss Farmer. And Miss Farmer is a very attractive woman. We then get what sounds like Love on a Train from Tangerine Dream in the background. So the tension is building. Jerry starts speaking directly to Miss Farmer. Miss Farmer then stands up. He walks over to her. Ask Miss Farmer her favorite book. She replies, turning of the screw, and they kiss. And when they show the reaction shots of the students, those are classic. I just started laughing out loud. It is fantastic. It would be the same reaction shot I would have had if I had saw this happen in class. And then after they kiss, Jerry passes out to find himself in the nurse's office with large Marge. <laughs> and he finds out he's not going to detention. But Miss Farmer gives Jerry her phone number and wants to learn a little bit more. It is the funniest scene of the goddamn movie. I love it. Now that's a book report. <laughs> right? That is right. Oh, my God. <sighs> great, great delivery there, Bill. I love it because you were kind right. of getting into character there. You were getting a little sultry yourself in the delivery and the kind of the smooth, nice dramatic pauses in between. It was a little sexy, Bill Bats. That was great, man. And I couldn't agree more. This scene... Is so rewatchable. Casey Samasco nails it. The subtlety, he's great because he has to go for it a bit because he's trying to intentionally get detention. But when he lights that cigarette and takes his time and we're just anticipating the cough, but he doesn't do the, oh, <coughs> he just kind of does the, <coughs> like the really kind of subtle. It's like, oh man, he's killing it. But yeah, the delivery of the, uh, the uh, it's a good read. Fast, angry, sexual. <laughs> it's like... It's absolutely hilarious, and the the tangerine, dream, the soundtrack is wonderful behind it. Dayton, I'm sure you have more to say about that. Oh yeah, it was on my list too. And uh, there's so many good things about that scene, and the fact that Simesco sells the cough 
because uh, a year prior he was in Stand By Me, which you mentioned earlier, one of my favorites. He smokes like two packs, at, you know, in that movie. So it's like, you know, he can smoke, so it shouldn't be a problem. But he may, he makes you believe that he's never smoked before, even a couple times, like right before he takes a drag right before he gets in this farmer's face. And you can tell he didn't actually take a drag right. You know, like there was no actual inhale or whatever. So it's it was easy, I think, for a smoker to, you know, just accidentally make it look like he's actually smoking. But he did a good job making us believe that he's never done that before. I really like that. And I don't know about you guys, but if I'm spitting out that gum, I know I missed the trash can nine times out of ten. You know, and I'm just like, I, I'd hit the desk. I probably would have hit Miss Farmer. It would have been terrible, you know, but uh, no, I love it. It's a, you're right, exactly right. It's a rewatchable scene. And you're you're kind of thinking, you know, I think a lot of us had that teacher in high school that you wish you could have had the guts to do that, you know, just, just once, you know, knowing you shouldn't, but still, uh, I think he was living, he's living our dream right there in that scene. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mr. Wire. <laughs> there he, oh, that was the name of your teacher. Oh yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, that's correct. I, I almost, yeah. that almost got by me for a second. That's so funny. Yeah. We've all had that teacher. I, I would, I, I think, uh, but yeah, that's funny. You know exactly who it is. Uh, <laughs> All right, Dayton, back to you. Do you have any other uh, favorite scenes or moments you want to share? Sure. Um, Actually, yeah, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. The fight scene at the end, man. Uh, Oh, yeah. God, if we didn't mention this. uh, Right. Yeah, the fight scene is great for so many reasons. The 80s were filled with over-the-top fight scenes. You know, the big tough guys, you know, they hit each other like 30 times. Nobody seems to bleed. Nobody seems to go down. And they're fun. They're whatever. But this one, and I've seen – my fair share of fights and they're always sloppy. They're always a lot of uh, grappling, but not a lot of punches being thrown. And they do that in this. I mean, yeah, there's some good punches thrown in there, but there's only a few. There's a lot of jumping on the back. There's a lot of, you know, getting thrown on the car. Uh, his friend Vincent jo- shows up and gets kneed in the balls. You know, it's just that when you're just like, oh, and you cringe just like he did. Brandy shows up and tries to help and then gets just pushed down. And there's a lot going around. But what really, really sends this over the top is the crowd. Everybody's standing around there, leaning out the windows or on top of cars. And my brain goes, oh my God, it's Thunderdome. I'm just waiting for somebody to start going, two men enter, one man leave. I'm just, because yes. that's exactly how it felt to me. And they did such a great job making you, you know, this this is actually how a fight would ha- happen and feel after school in the parking lot. And the fact that the Duker gets knocked unconscious is great. The Dean Discipline runs away afraid. And the principal has one of the best lines in the movie. Don't fuck this up. <laughs> it's great, man. I mean, he's just like, don't fuck this up, Mitchell. And you're just like, really? The, the principal just told him not to. Oh, oh, it was so much fun. I love that. And when he picks up the brass knuckles that was given to him by his sister, there's Bregan helping out big brother. And he knocks him out. And the look on Tyson's face, like, I can't believe I just got punched and he goes down. It's great. I cheer every time Tyson hits the ground. It's great. So much fun. That's it. Nailed it, Dayton. I mean, that's the scene. It's the brass knuckles scene. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the great line from Mr. O'Rourke because I wrote it down. There are three exclamations, I should say four in a row. It starts with Vincent, goes to Bree, goes to Franny, and then finally Mr. O'Rourke. And it goes, kill him, Jer. Break his face, rip his head off. Don't fuck this up, Mitchell. <laughs> I was laughing out loud so hard. Uh, John P. Ryan, who plays Mr. O'Rourke, is wonderful. He's been in a lot of other 80s films. Uh, for me, notably, The Right Stuff. He's recognizable as a kind of a, a one of those guys. But uh, 
man, with those lines back to back to back and then his exclamation of Mitchell. <laughs> so yeah, man, that's, yeah, my earliest memory, number one, is the brass knuckles, of course, at the very tail end of this. But yeah, thanks for breaking it down because it's a brawl. It's an all-out brawl. It's a little rough around the edges. But man, there's some great sound design with the punches, by the way. It's almost Raiders of the Lost Ark-esque. It's the, you know. And when Casey, man, I should say Jerry, takes some hits when he gets punched in the chest in that one moment. You're just like, oh, oh my God. Your, your heart stops and you're thinking that Jerry's heart just stopped. Yeah, it's some great action. But yeah, I'll, I'll get into a little bit and I think an additional thought a little bit more. But thanks for breaking that down. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful finale. Yeah, Jason, what do you got next for your uh, next favorite scene or moment? Well, uh, let's see here. I am going to just go with a moment for time's sake here. And uh, it's in the student store. We got the great Jeffrey Tambor as Mr. Rice. And at this point, a desperate Jerry Mitchell is trying to break into the broken cash register using a fire extinguisher because he needs the cash inside that register in order to pay off the big football player to beat up Buddy for him before 3 p.m. So he's trying to get into the broken cash register using this fire extinguisher. And the extinguisher goes off, spraying foam everywhere. So Jerry ends up accidentally trashing the store. And later on, when Mr. Rice comes into the student store, he sees it totally trashed. And he's just completely dejected. Like, he's so upset. Mr. Rice is, like, genuinely upset. It's like, I felt bad in that moment. Jeffrey Tambor, of course, wonderful actor. But he doesn't know that it was Jerry that made a mess of things. And he says to him, and this is my moment, Whoever did this is a criminal. Whoever did this should be plucked out of our school like a burgeoning cancerous growth deep inside the colon. Absolutely love that quote. It's just one of the greatest. Who says that? It's so descriptive. And I'm like, I wonder if Tambor improv, like if he came up with that on his own. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Didn't see any of that in the research. Uh, Just wanted to call out that moment for that quote alone. Oh, awesome. Uh, because that actually kind of leans into my second favorite scene or moment. And that's uh, Buddy knocks out Greg. So as you described, Jerry has to break into the school store to get money in order to have Craig Maddie, who's head of the football team. He's going to pay him basically protection money to take care of Buddy for him so he doesn't have to fight at three o'clock. So he gets the money gives it to Craig and Craig's like, all right, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it probably during lunchtime. And sure enough, Jerry runs to his friend, Victor. And Victor says, Hey, I saw a buddy in the library and Craig's going there too. And they decide, Oh, let's go watch this takedown of Craig knocking out buddy. So we see buddy. He's at the desk all the way at the end of the library. He's reading a book and Craig walks up to him and he goes, uh, how you doing buddy? And buddy's not really paying attention. And he kind of looks up and he's like, do I know you? And Craig goes, uh, played football against each other. And Buddy's like, all right. And then he stands up. So now they're they're face to face. And he goes, uh, you were the puss that always bled. And Craig comes back with him. I heard you're giving Mitchell a hard time. And Buddy's like, yep. And so it's even going to get harder. Because now he's really pissed off Buddy that he knows that Jerry's gotten Craig to do this for him. And then Craig makes the biggest mistake of all. He starts pointing his finger into Buddy's chest, which we know already. That is a huge, huge no-no. And he says to him, you aren't going to do shit to him, asshole. And before Craig even knows what happens next, Buddy takes his finger, breaks it, stuns Craig to the point where 
Buddy throws a fist, hits him square in the mouth, knocking him over into a stack of books in the library. Watch out. Knocks over another stack, which knocks over another stack. So you have the whole domino effect through all the stacks throughout the school. And of course, when the last stack falls, all you see standing there is Jerry and Victor. Super busted. And after that happens, Buddy just looks at Victor and Jerry and just does a scene ends and then you look at craig he's got a tooth knocked out his face is all bloody if buddy just did that to craig what the hell is he gonna do to jerry jerry might have better find a way out of this fight really really fast love that scene you know what i really love about that scene is the uh the library worker his reaction to everything the look <laughs> on his face yeah. when those those shelves go down he's just kind of like oh just oh and i thought about that. I was like how long is it gonna take to pick up all those books shit <laughs> So great. Uh, that was my next favorite scene, and uh, that covers it, guys. Bill, thank you. Thank you for recapping that scene. I love it. I'm glad, Dayton, you mentioned the library worker, because the student reactions throughout this are excellent, and they're important. However, it's super important that we establish just how bad a dude Buddy Ravel is. And he is a violent person, and... I believe it. I believe Richard Tyson in this role. He's not like pulling any punches. Every punch he throws, you feel it. Like you actually feel it as if you're getting punched through the movie screen. And his delivery is great. He just is uh, somebody you not to be trifled with. You, you just don't want to mess with. So throughout, it, the stakes get really high. As in you not only do, don't want to see Jerry get into this fight with him, but... You're afraid for Jerry's life. You think if he fights, if he actually, after watching this, after the watching how Buddy takes out Craig, if Jerry goes up against this guy, at the very least be put in the hospital, he might get killed. Like it, the stakes go up and up and up. So this scene really piles it on. And man, speaking of Richard Tyson's performance, I love any time somebody touches him in this movie because we it's been well established that he's a touch freak. So as soon and it's always a quick close up of a finger or the hand, you know, holding him on the on the side of the arm and they do that purposefully, right? Because we know, oh shit. <laughs> and then <laughs> but he does that look. He just looks down, he's like and then they'll do like a quick zoom in of his face or the other guy's face and then poof, he knocks him out. But that face he makes anytime somebody touches him is just that oh shit moment. Uh, and it's, it's just supremely effective. And you really feel the danger and you think he's extremely dangerous and you believe it. To see Craig, this big buff football player, lying on the bookshelf, just all bloodied with missing teeth is like, oh damn, this is not looking good for Jerry Mitchell. Oh, and by the way, I just want to say, when that last bookshelf tips over and you just see Vincent and Jerry standing way in the back, and they're just busted. You're like, oh my God, that's funny. That's funny. It is. Uh, does anybody else have a favorite scene or moment that we miss they want to bring up? I just actually have, I just have a camera. Uh, earlier, Jason mentioned how well this was shot. When Buddy arrives at school and he's walking in through all the students, it's a tracking shot that's really cool because I look at it and there's like multiple layers of students. And as he's walking in, there's a student walking the same pace as he is, but they're like one row of students over. And then there's rows of students, like some are walking the other direction, some are standing still, and some are moving with him. And it's very, very cool. And I notice it every time I watch it, I'm like going, 
that it was so purposeful because they did it from both angles, that there was somebody moving his same pace. There was people going the other direction. There was people standing still to create, here's this massive guy in the middle of all these people and they're all watching him walk into the school. I just thought it was a really cool shot. And I notice it every time I watch it. That stuff was making me nervous when he's walking down the halls. I'm like, if someone bumps into him, does that mean they're dead meat? Is that how much it pisses him off to be touched? That was scary for me. It really was. Yeah, they really establish his presence from the get, which is great. You have the classic moment of the car pulling up to the curb, like screeching up and him stepping out and you see the boot and you're like, okay, here we go. And doesn't disappoint. Great, great call, man. And especially there's one of my favorite shots actually is, well, there's a series of shots right before the fight that lead up to the, there's the final minutes and it's just bang, 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 where you see Casey Smosko putting his books in the locker, cut to the clock, the ticking clock, click, 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 as it just counts like three minutes, two minutes, one minute. And there's a great silhouette shot of Buddy from behind as he's walking alone and going down the stairs. And it's just like, damn, man, they knew what they were doing. Phil Genoux, man. And this credit to the cinematographer. They, It's just... But I was thinking as you were describing that opening shot with Buddy arriving, uh, Dayton, that the second unit director had his work cut out for him with all those extras and stuff. Uh, That was well choreographed. This is a smart movie. It's a smart movie. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, so let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaints department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese, Jason? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have punch holes. That's right. So what plot holes, bloopers, or general complaints would you like to file about three o'clock high, Dayton, start us off. Okay, so my first complaint is with Jerry's sister, Bree. Now, what? we've already talked about her and we like her character, but there's something that happens when we're at the bookstore for the first time that makes no sense whatsoever. While Jerry is talking to uh, Tambor's character, um, she picks up something off the shelf and steals it. She puts it in her backpack. We don't come back to this at all. It's never mentioned again. And it throws me off every time. I'm thinking, well, is there something that they cut out? If it was, was there an ongoing storyline that they shot maybe didn't fit? And if so, why leave that shot in there? It doesn't make any sense. And it completely goes against the character of Brie, who we like because she is a decent sister. She's a decent person. She's there to help her brother. But here we are at the bookstore and she's stealing. It makes no sense to me. I'm like, um, what's this? Hmm. I miss that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. No, it's during the conversation when uh, Jerry's showing them how much they've made. They cut back to her. She looks at them, picks something off the shelf, puts it in her backpack. This is why you're the man, Dayton. You are a fan of this movie. <laughs> you pick up on the subtleties. That that went right past me. Man, I feel pretty good about myself right about now. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Damn. I got to rewatch it now. That's great. 
I see. I just gave you another reason to watch it. See, there you go. Oh, I after revisiting this film, I'm going to be honest, guys. I want to buy this. I got to have a physical copy of this movie. I do have a physical copy of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Again, there you have it. I'm going to say this real quick, uh, gentlemen, real quick complaint. There's a couple gay slurs in this film that we know are not cool. So we often say on this podcast, well, it was the 80s, kind of a, as a throwaway line. And we say that with some levity. But in this case, uh, we say it with a little little shame, a little disappointment. Uh, that was, unfortunately, the 80s. We would get those uh, gay slurs from time to time. So uh, that does happen in the movie. Um, here's a quick complaint. Maybe it's just kind of a observation, but I'm not sure we needed both Delinsky, the Dean of Discipline, and Principal Mr. O'Rourke. I thought those characters could have been rolled into one. Delinsky is fine. He's intimidating presence of his own, but I don't know. I didn't think he was entirely, that character was entirely necessary. Just a thought. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. I don't have an issue with that if they did that. I liked his office. Yeah. <laughs> Quite intimidating. Yes. yes, he did have a cool office. <laughs> Um, so my first complaint is why doesn't Jerry shows what happened to his car to at least kind of prove that something is happening to him? Because when mm. he tells the Dean of Discipline what it is and he's like, that's the biggest BS story I've ever heard in my life. But at least like, hey, look at my car. I didn't do that to myself. Makes his story maybe a little bit valid. Doesn't necessarily point towards Buddy, but at least he's not giving him 100% BS. That's the only like evidence that Buddy really leaves, that he's going to do something to Jerry. Mm. Outside of that, his hands are clean up to that point. Well, he had the note until uh, the Duker let it go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anybody could have wrote that too, so. Yeah. yeah, true. Valid complaint. Yeah. Uh, what else you got, Dayton? Yeah, so uh, when Jerry first runs into Buddy in the restroom, and Buddy kind of loses his shit, and he pushes jerry into the urinal and flushes it repeatedly and we see jerry's feet go into the water and he you know the whole front of him's got to be soaked from the waist down right after he leaves the restroom and actually walking back to the newspaper you can see the discoloration in the front of his jeans we never go back to this either i don't know about you guys but if my shoes are soaked and the front of my jeans are wet i gotta change i got something's got it's gotta (laughs) yeah and it just seems like we just ignore it the rest of the day so I, I just thought that was kind of like, um, if you're going to set it up, cool. Maybe he had extra clothes at school. I don't know. But it just seems to me walking around in wet shoes that we would have heard it or something else. I don't know. It just seemed like it It was a great idea that went nowhere after that. So it, it kind of bothers me a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that too. Because when he was, Buddy throws him, he starts flushing. I thought for sure he was going to be completely soaked in the front. And then they emphasized the shoe more and he turns around like, Wait, are his pants wet? Oh, maybe he he didn't get them. Maybe he wasn't leaning in far enough. But yeah, he probably should have. And, and you're right. Yeah, he's been walking around with wet pants for the rest of the day. And as we know, jeans take forever to dry. So yeah, I could have made for a vulnerable moment if he had to go to the bathroom and maybe take them off and try and dry them or something and was caught with his, literally with his pants down or off or something like that. But yeah, that's valid. I, You know, I thought about that, too. As soon as he got shoved into that urinal, all I could think of was like, oh, man, the whole front of his pants are stained and they look wet. That's supremely embarrassing, having to go back to class and look like you, you kind of peed yourself or something like that. It just wouldn't be nice, but they don't emphasize it. Although there is that great line that Buddy gives him something about, you can take that paper and wipe your dick off with it or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jerry needs a microwave stat. Right. Right. <laughs> it's handy microwave. Yeah. So for my, my other complaint is Samosco's great. Tyson's great. I thought the rest of the characters in the movie were kind of weak. 
Like I didn't think really Vincent brought anything to the table. Then we had the the ongoing storyline of the two guys that wanted to film, like do a documentary of Jerry's day. I was like, I didn't need them. And then there was a kid in the um, red, what was he wearing? Red beret. Yeah, the red beret. And he comes up and says, hey, you know, I need you to last three minutes in the fight because there's all this betting going on. And we see him like two or three more times throughout the movie. I was like, usually when you have these high school, you always have like these cool, eccentric characters that are off to the side. And this movie I felt like didn't have. They, they didn't do anything for me. They weren't funny. I was just like, just go back to Jerry. Just go back to Buddy. I, I just want to see more of them. I, I don't need to see the, the rest of the campus kids. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Bill, because uh, I think that's a valid complaint. I would not have argued with an extra 10 to 15 minutes of this movie, meaning I felt that all the actors themselves were solid, super solid. Some of the characters were a tad on the surface, a bit flimsy. It's just that, like, let's say going back to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, one of the best all time coming of age high school movies ever. So that is taking place over one day, but they spend a lot of their time outside of school and they're free to go on adventures and you get a lot of character and relationship development versus this. The constraint is that it is inside the school for the entire day. It's only so much you can do. How much can you delve into? But I still think even, and I was going to bring this up later on in my additional thoughts or questions, Do we would we want a little bit more from Jerry and Franny's relationship? Because that's something I was needing a little bit more of, but to get a little more of those side characters... Or have it play in cleverly somehow, come at full, have it come full circle in the end with that documentary film that they were going to be making on uh, Jerry's day, historic day, and things like that. It could have been there. Could have been a little bit more to it. So I, I'm in agreement. Well, let me ask a question. Do you feel like Jerry and Franny end up together at the end? Oh, that was one of my questions. That was one of my questions too. It was one of my uh, thoughts. Yeah, I I don't know because. Uh... Miss Farmer comes in and kisses him right in front of her. So I don't know how Randy's going to feel about that. So, you know, there's a, there's a question there for sure. My question was, does Jerry end up with Franny, Karen, or Miss Farmer? <laughs> Seems like he has a choice. Yeah, he does. Yeah. I'm voting Miss Farmer. I pick Franny because Miss Farmer, it'd be because, you know, she'd be breaking the law to be really honest. So I'm just saying. That's a whole other movie. <laughs> That's a whole other movie. This is like, you know? yeah, yeah, it's like. It's almost like that game, uh, fuck, Mary kill, but I'm going to just go with this. I'm going to say uh, <laughs> he should end up with Franny. Right. If it were me today, I'd go with Miss Farmer. No question about it. <laughs> if it was me then, I should choose Franny, but I would have gone for Karen. She's pretty smoking. And uh, man, when she's like, so I heard about you in class with Miss Farmer. You want to come over to my party tomorrow night or whatever? The way she delivers that, I'm like, oh my goodness. Right. Yes, I want to come over to your party tomorrow night. Great question, though. That's funny, too, because when you're introduced to Karen in the very beginning of the car, I thought maybe she was like a mom or something. I didn't realize she was a student. Yeah, she looks a little too old to be a student. Couldn't remember initially how she tied into the movie. And I was like, oh, right, 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 right. She's the crush. Right. I'm going to rattle off a couple things. As great as the finale is, as much as I love it, couple of nitpicky items here. See if uh, you agree or not. But uh, if we've seen Buddy Ravel knock out two of Craig's teeth, he's knocked out the principal and he's knocked out the security officer with one punch. No way that Jerry survives one punch. <laughs> he gets smacked. I mean, he gets one right in the noggin, right in the face. And I'm just like, I love Jerry. I want him to win. I want him to, to stake the conscious. <laughs> 
it's been well established that Buddy's knocking out big men with one punch. And it's just kind of, it's tough. I mean, Jerry goes down for a bit. So I'll give you that. Like he's down and out for a bit there. And luckily his buddy Vincent jumps in to save the day. But I was like, ah, this is tough. But Jerry's pretty resilient. So next, Vincent, when that happens, when Jerry goes down, Vincent momentarily saves Jerry's ass by jumping on Buddy and distracting him. And Buddy drops the brass knuckles. But then Buddy dispatches of Vincent quickly with a knee to the nuts. Now, wouldn't Buddy immediately be looking for his brass knuckles after that? That's his go-to weapon of choice. And we know we've seen, as an audience, we know that Jerry picked up the brass knuckles off the ground. But Buddy himself just had him and he dropped him. I, I just think I just was like, wouldn't he be going like, where are my brass knuckles? Oh, crap. Maybe the other guy has them. It's nitpicky, guys. It's nitpicky. Well, I actually have some thoughts about those two. I looked at it with Jerry. He was enjoying himself and taking his time. With Craig and with the Duker, he would just wanted them out of the way. So it was just knocking them out, get out of the way, get back to Jerry because he wants to enjoy it because he had to work off all that anger. He had to work it out. That's right. So work it off. He was trying to make it, you know, he was trying to make it take longer and that, ah, but okay. he brings out the brass knuckles when he's time to finish it, finish the fight. Now, I just kind of assumed he figured somebody else picked them up and ran with the brass knuckles since they're rare and hard to find. And, you know, how's he going to find them and a couple hundred students standing out there? So that's that's how I rationalize those away. But I, I see your point, too, though. Oh, I'm going with Dayton's answers. <laughs> well, in that case, Bill, you just asked for it because I'm just going to keep talking. Uh, I've got one more complaint. <laughs> All right, go for it. <laughs> Buddy. Buddy has assaulted the principal and the security officer. And then... It disappears when our guy, our detective, uh, Philip Baker Hall, shows up. But then he, at the end, returns to school to give the 350 bucks back to Jerry. Nice moment. Great moment. Are we to assume Buddy is back in school without repercussion, suspension, expulsion, jail time? He knocked out the principal. He knocked out the security officer. That's full-on assault. Well, okay. So uh, along those lines, uh, as much as I enjoy the bookstore scene at the end, there is a lot of issues with it. Just because he suddenly gets the money back from the students, which is a great moment. You know, here, we're here to help. But that, doesn't, that shouldn't save Jerry either. You know, I mean, Good. I thought about that. You know, too. they yeah. think he stole the money. I mean, I mean, what happens to Jerry? There's still all that stuff, the vandalism, whatever. They still there's still that question mark. So, you know, we don't really address that either. So I, I agree. That's a little uh, unusual little, you know, it's like did the cops just go, OK, never mind. We're just kidding. We're done. That's fine. It's all right. The money's back. <laughs> Yeah, Never mind everything put a quick else. Bow and, on it at the end there, yeah. And who cleaned up the bookstore? <laughs> I'm just saying the place was a trash. So you know, Jerry didn't go back and clean it up after the fight. So I'm just yeah. It's not just replacing the four hundred and fifty dollars. It's who's going right. to replace the supplies that were destroyed. Yeah, the whole place was trash. So, but yeah, no, I get you. I think O'Rourke gave Jerry the pass. Yeah, I believe O'Rourke, but yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily even know if uh, O'Rourke got the cops on board. So. Either way. Drop charges. Yeah, sure. They can't 100% prove at that point that Jerry did it. (laughs) Right. They're pretty sure, but they never prove it. So I think O'Rourke's like, eh, everything's taken care of. Buddy's now in place. I'm okay with that. Okay. Time to move on. It's, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you've seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Dayton, who is your choice for, hey, it's that actor? Well, we've mentioned him uh, quite a bit already, and it's the Duker himself, Mitch Pileggi, in his second feature film, 
Heck yeah. He had some parts in some in some not so great other movies, Return of the Living Dead Part Two, Shocker, It's Pat, and the Vamp and Vampire in Brooklyn. And as you mentioned, of course, probably best known from his part as assistant director of the FBI in the X Files. Now he also makes an appearance in one of my favorite TV shows. Uh, he pops up in that '70s show as uh, one of Red Foreman's buddies. So I just want to mention that because I love that show and that's a great episode as well. And it turns out he's a uh, he's a swinger and it you know and Red's <laughs> not okay with that. <laughs> So, oh, that's right. I do remember that yep. one. Okay. I was like, which one was that? And you said, so I was like, yep, I remember that episode. Jason, is there anyone else we could spotlight for? Hey, it's that actor. You know, I was looking at everyone and I, I can say this much. I, I wish Ann Ryan as Franny and also uh, Lisa, or I should say Liza Morrow as Karen. I with, wish they had done more. They don't have much of a filmography. There's not much no. there. Yeah, I wish Annie was in work because she was actually in three high school movies. Um, she was in two in 86. She was uh, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. She's the one that tells Ferris's sister that Ferris is going to donate his eyes to TV Wonder if he dies. Has that little scene with uh, Jennifer Grey. She's also a cheerleader in Lucas. She ah. plays uh, one of the bully football players' girlfriends. And it's a wonderful movie. So she's in that. And then she appears in uh, this one too. So three uh, high school roles in a matter of a year. There you go. Great stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Franny reminded me of a cross between Boof from Teen Wolf and uh, Jordan from Real Genius. I think if you combine the two, <laughs> yeah, you yes. come out, you come out yeah. with Franny. Yep. Now, this brings us to facts and trivia. What are some fun facts or trivia we learned about three o'clock high? Go for it, Dayton. Yeah. Okay. I got something. Um, as I mentioned before, Buddy is reading of Mice and Men in the library. And in the book, there is a character named Curly who has a tendency to challenge people to a fight. Well, five years after playing Jerry Mitchell, Casey Simesco would play Curly in the Gary Sinise directed of Mice and Men. Thought that was a nice little circle there. That's cool. Yeah. Yes. That's a great one. Uh, here's a big one uh, that you'll see all over the research if you look for it. Director Steven Spielberg was the executive producer on this movie, but he asked to have his name removed from the credits as he had done two years earlier with another youth comedy, Fandango. From 1985, both films would, of course, go on to have strong cult followings. But I definitely did not know that before getting into some of this research. No, I didn't either. Yeah, that was a surprise to me, too. Yeah. Yeah. So Three O'Clock High was first released in theaters on October 9th, 1987 in 1,039 theaters. On an estimated budget of $6 million, it grossed $3.7 million domestically in the United States. It debuted number nine at the box office and dropped out of the top 10 the following week. Ouch. Hmm. Rough. Um, yes. So something else I thought was interesting. We see uh, in the opening credits, uh, we see the name Barry Sonnenfeld, future director, was a cinematographer for the movie and was also billed as a lighting consultant, which I thought was kind of unusual. But yeah, Sonnenfeld will go on to do uh, some great stuff like you know, Men in Black. I yep. thought that was awesome. Yeah, that was funny because, you know, watching the movie and I didn't really notice any of the credits except for that one. And I was like, what? Right. Lighting consultant? What the hell is that? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Oh, that's the only name I recognized, too, throughout the credits. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I know that one. Yeah, that's great. I will just continue with my first fun fact regarding Steven Spielberg. Because according to director Phil Genoux, he was heavily influenced by director Martin Scorsese's After Hours from 1985 and Raging Bull from 1980 while making this film. Executive producer Steven Spielberg was expecting a movie to be handed in, which was of the type and the style of The Karate Kid, and Spielberg apparently said to Genou after seeing the movie, 
what happened to Karate Kid? You made a Scorsese film. <laughs> and that's part of what led to Spielberg taking his name off the project was uh, Phil Genoux went with, uh, as Dayton mentioned, right from the get, a uh, little bit of a grittier, darker version. That's not, I'm not going to go as far as to say this movie's dark, but I mean, right. it's got an edge to it and it's not, certainly not the Karate Kid. Not that, that much of a feel good movie. <laughs> Right. True. It's a lot right. of anxiety in this movie. So something else I saw that I thought was interesting that the uh, scene where Miss Farmer comes back to the bookstore to see Jerry and gives him a kiss was actually added after the test audiences wanted to know what happened to Miss Farmer. So that was actually not in the script originally, and they decided to go back and shoot it and put that in there. So I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah. Excellent choice. We love us Miss Farmer. Yep. Yeah. More Miss Farmer. That's more better. <laughs> <laughs> As for reviews, 3 O'Clock High was not featured on At The Movies with Siskel and Ebert. However, Roger did do a video review for this movie and wasn't too kind, giving it just one star, stating he wished the hero tried to figure out how to make peace with this kid intellectually. You're missing the point there. Leonard Moulton gave the movie one and a half out of four stars, saying that Casey Samasco is underwhelming as the lead. What are these guys watching? Right. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a tomato meter score of 57% and an IMDb rating of 7.1. It's really interesting, guys. It's really interesting because you listen to those reviews. First of all, Roger Ebert, he's you know on the Mount Rushmore, right? He's the, he's, he's the guy. Right. We love him. But when it came to comedies of the 80s, it seemed like he just had a certain take. I mean, you could you look at Pauline Kael as very, you know, one of the most revered critics, but just has a specific take. And right. that's okay. So art is opinion. Great. But this just one got past Raj. And uh, as far as the other reviews, because I get the fact that we talk about Ferris Bueller's and these other coming of age, the John Hughes films and the Cusack films, et cetera, of the 80s. It's hard. You know, those are iconic and you compare everything to those. And this is a little bit different, a little bit different take on some things, but it's a little different stylistically shot the way it's shot too. But um, guys, I love this movie as a kid, you know, so I love it today. So I don't know what, it just got buried, you know, and maybe it was, yeah. I hope it wasn't, maybe it was because of the, these reviews. I've never been a fan of Leonard Walton anyway, so I didn't really care. Yeah. What he had to say, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is funny that both lead actors, Casey Samasco and Richard Tyson, who portray high school students, of course, they were over 25 years of age when this was made. They were both older than director Phil Genou. <laughs> Just throwing that in there. All right. So before we wrap things up here on this week's episode, is there any additional thoughts uh, any of us want to share with our audience about 3 o'clock high? Yeah, I've, I've got a big one. Go ahead. I, I just like this kind of... It's because, you know, we talk about the feel-good coming-of-age films in the 80s, but I, I still actually felt pretty good. I would say this is a little bit of a different take on things, but let me just say this. The, you know, in the film, the word travels fast that Jerry's going to fight Buddy in the parking lot at 3 p.m. So the whole school knows, except for Craig, which is really funny in that moment. It's hilarious because the entire school body is always staring at Jerry as he walks the halls, enters a classroom, confronts Buddy at his locker, and especially the end. Dayton, you nailed it when you said, man, when he the, literally the entire school is waiting in the parking lot to cheer him on, not to mention all the school kids hanging on the rooftops, all the school kids hanging out of the windows. It is wonderful and hilarious. So it's not just about the anxiety and the pressure and the ticking clock and the impending doom. But for me, it's about Jerry's journey 
to becoming a high school legend himself all in one day. We know that Buddy is a notorious legend already, but this is Jerry becoming something more. And it's really fun to watch. I mean, we see him get into a lot of trouble and he's desperate and he commits vandalism and such. And he makes out with a couple different women and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) students want to film him. Students are taking bets. The pretty girl wants to talk to him. Like I said, kisses the hot teacher. He makes out with friends. He commits like vandalism, but he does win the fight and it all makes for a historical day at Weaver High. It it really is like wish fulfillment kind of for us looking back on the high school. Like, man, to have had a day like that in high school, it to be talked about in the halls forever, you know, uh, just as they are doing at the end with the rumors that spread, you know. But yeah, I mean, it's a lot about overcoming fear. It's Jerry has to come to grips with his fear. And so that was just another, you know, additional thought I had, you know, you look at it as kind of, it's all buddy, 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 but it um, being, you know, the legend of buddy and all that he's done, but it all becomes about Jerry in the end. It's kind of a, a hero's journey in a way. You know, right. It's kind of funny, though. Definitely. Dayton, anything that we missed that you want to touch on? No, uh, not really. We pretty much covered most of everything. And we already covered a couple of my other questions as well. So, no, I'm good. All right. So uh, down to final questions. Jason, do you have any final questions about today's movie? Yeah. So when I mentioned overcoming fear, and it's tough in high school, Dayton brought this up. It's a sensitive subject, the, the bullying. It's a real thing. We've dealt with this, I believe, Bill, on a previous film, too. And it's it's not uh, I, what, how to put this uh, sensitively. It's just not to be overlooked. I mean, and it isn't. It's, it is prevalent in society today and is often talked about. And it's you see it on the news and you see the results of, of bullying and it can be quite tragic. But here in this, you know, we know it's a real thing. And we look back on this film and overcoming fear. And it's interesting. There's this scene Uh, when Jerry is truly desperate and approaches Buddy in the gym towards the end and says, I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't fight you. And he's just like, I try, he's this final plea. And then he comes up, he's like, he realizes he's got the money still. And he's like, I'll give you 350 bucks. And Buddy stops and says, okay, I'll accept the offer. And he takes the money. And then he looks right at Jerry and says, you know what, Mitchell, you're the biggest pussy I've ever seen in my life. You don't even try, or you didn't even try how does that feel? And that was like a kidney punch, man. The way that Richard Tyson delivers that is rough. And that's what then is the catalyst for Jerry to change his mind. He goes up to the roof and he's just really affected by that. And it just shakes him to his core. And so my question is, as a result of that whole diatribe, has anyone ever said anything like that to you that, it was so penetrating or profound or devastating that it changed your course of thought, feeling, or action, or maybe even your path in life. It's kind of a deep question, <laughs> but where it's like, but I mean, it's happened to me, and it doesn't have to be negative. But it's when Richard Tyson says, "You didn't even try." How does that feel? It's almost as bad as your parents telling you they're disappointed in you. Yeah, 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 yeah. You'd right? almost rather yeah. them yell at you and punish you but never have them say they're disappointed. I think there's nothing worse than hearing that from your parents. I don't think anything's hit me quite like that. I did have somebody when I was working at a portrait photography studio tell me I ruined their Christmas. That really hurt. Ooh. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but 
yeah, that kind of sat with me for quite some time. Ouch. Uh, and I think I did everything I could to fix the fix the problem, but uh, yeah, that really that hurt for a while. Wow. Yeah, I had one of those moments. Um, I have I had an ex girlfriend who was actually a very supportive of my career in the entertainment business, whether it be writing or acting. But after seeing a short film of mine, uh, she had a comment and this is my fault because she wasn't going to tell me what it was. And I, I got it out of her finally. And she just looked right at me and said, you need to stop acting. (laughs) And I was like, uh, well, that's my dream and you just shattered it. And now that I'm questioning everything, I don't believe she was right, but i still had a lot of respect for her opinion. And it was just like, Oh, okay. Now I got to rethink things and really think about why she said that. So, you know, but that's, that happens in life, right? It just, it happens. Yeah. Anyway, I, I just asked that question because that line in the way Buddy delivers it. That uh, is tough. Yeah. Because I would have thought initially in the first watch, to be honest, gentlemen, I was like, I wish Jerry had come to the conclusion that he needs to fight Buddy in a different way, like somehow comes to it in a different way for whatever reason. But then revisiting that scene and really watching Richard Tyson deliver that line as Buddy. I was like, oh, I can see why Casey had to swallow that and go up to the roof and really think about, like, reach real, reach down deep to find his cojones and be like, ah, I can't, now I can't live with myself if I don't fight this guy. Yep. Sometimes you just need to push, you know, whether it be from somebody that cares about you or somebody that hates you, you know, you just need to push some way, you know? Yeah. Jason, you got a more uplifting question? I do. (laughs) Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this movie got me, man. I love this movie. Uh, Here, guys, can you explain Franny's reaction after kissing Jerry in the student store just before they are quote unquote bond? I'm glad you asked this because I had no idea either. We know that okay. Franny is attracted. She's like uh, Ducky in this situation, right? She's the friend that's um, attracted to the protagonist. We know she's kind of flirt. She's been fl- you know flirtatious with Jerry, and she comes up with this kind of cuckoo idea, like he, how she's going to get together with him is that he she's going to help him through this clairvoyant process, and one of part of it is that they have to bond. So she sets up some candles and a blanket over like a table in the student store and basically she says yeah we got we have to bond we have to have sex <laughs> and they end up kissing they have a deep long kiss and then she pulls away and has a very thoughtful expression but i don't know what it is what do you guys think it was i have a theory <laughs> oh yeah i want to hear it because um, i had no idea okay so it's obviously she has a thing for jerry and we know this and i think the kiss was a little bit too real for her. And I think her, initially she thought he's going to turn her down. No way is he going to have sex with her in this in the school store like this. And the kiss was maybe too believable. And I think she panicked. She wants to date Jerry. She wants to be his girlfriend, but I don't think she was ready to actually have sex with him. I think she figured he was going to say no. And when the kiss was too much, was there was too much in it, I think she panicked. That's my That's my theory. Great. I'll I'll take it because I'm glad you brought that up, Jason, because I think we would have ended the episode and I would have been pissed that we didn't bring this up because I was the same way. I'm like, wait, what's going on? So I actually thought maybe I thought maybe the opposite, that she felt the kiss that Jerry wasn't into her and she could sense that. And that's why she left. But I, I still wasn't sure because then at the end, she kisses him again. They seem fine. 
So that was like, oh, that kind of blows that idea. So Dayton, I'm going to, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to take that with me to the bank. A, A thousand percent Dayton. Thank you. Because that really was helpful. And I totally agree. I think after listening to your answer, she's clearly affected by the kiss. And often when we're young and we haven't experienced a lot of intimacy, you're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to do it. Just going to do it. Like it's just something to be, you know, yeah, it's no big deal. Just do it. You know, we're going to have my first kiss and it'll be fine or whatnot. And you talk about it as if it's nothing, but then when it happens and you feel something, it changes the game. And she clearly felt something. And it wasn't just going to be part of her uh, like seance or process or whatever it was. She was kind of passing it off as it became real for her. So I, I totally agree. She was thrown yeah. and uh, had to leave to digest that moment. Awesome. All right. So it's time to give this movie a rating. So we use a five-star rating system with zero stars being the worst and five stars being the best. And half-star increments are allowed. Since Dayton picked our movie today, it might be safe to assume that you're going to give it high marks. But will Jason, I agree. So Dayton, why don't you start us off with your rating for three o'clock high? All right. Well, uh, I went with uh, three and a half. It's not a cinematic masterpiece by far, as we've covered a lot of the problems. But you know what? It's a lot of fun to watch. Some really good humor in it. Uh, I never get tired of watching it. And you know what? It's got its own thing going on. It doesn't feel like the other high school movies of the time. And I appreciate that. So uh, three and a half. Yeah, I'm in total agreement. That's exactly what I put down. 3.5 brass knuckles for me. (laughs) That was my rating. I laughed out loud several times during watching this. I was surprised by some of the camera angles and shots and choices. Uh, Pleasantly surprised. I got a rush when Jerry walks out into that parking lot for the fight and everybody's cheering, I felt warm inside when the school kids supported him by buying up all the paper in the student store. I mean, I'm rooting for the kid the whole way. I was genuinely happy for him in the end. And, and like I said, the movie had a little bit of a pacing issue kind of in the, the second to third act. It slows down slightly, but overall, it really just works for me. Some movies just hit you right. It's a personal thing. And this hits me right. It's not Hughes. It's not Scorsese. But this is great 80s fun. Three and a half for me. Man, I'm still undecided. I've been going back and forth between three and a half and four because Jason knows I fucking love high school movies because I went to an all boys high school, which I've mentioned over and over again. So I love living vicariously through these films. And this was a film, like I said in the beginning, I'd never heard about it. And it totally caught me off guard how much I liked it. So I'm going to break our rules for here. But I know I'm eventually going to have to make an actual rule. I'm, I'm just going to say 3.75 right now. So I'm, I'm still undecided. <laughs> Hopefully by the time yeah. we put this episode out, I'll know if it's a four or three and a half. But that's, I'm going to probably have to watch it again. But I'm, I'm stuck right there right now. At 3.75. That's great. I was, I'm right there with you, Bill. I was close to giving it a four. It's funny. When we, uh, Dayton, you probably, I don't know how you feel this way when you're doing your pod. Sometimes you convince yourself, you talk about it long enough, you're like, man, I really do love this movie. I want to give it all the accolades. And uh, yeah, I was almost swayed to give it four as well. So I understand you're being in between there, Bill. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dayton, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, Why don't you take a moment to plug your excellent podcast one more time and let the audience know how they can listen to you. Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me guys, uh, having me on guys. It's been a lot of fun and uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, yeah. So DocuBase 77 podcast, uh, we are streaming free wherever you can find your podcasts. 
and uh, some stuff you want to check out for the month of June. Uh, we have uh, La Caja Falls versus The Birdcage. Nice little compare the remake to the original. Covering Disney movie Emperor's New Groove. Uh, round out the month, we are covering three albums from the band Cinderella, uh, Night Songs, Long Cold Winter, and Heartbreak Station. So that's a little bit what we got going on for uh, June. But yeah, it's we have a lot of fun. I have a lot of friends on there that we have a good chemistry. We like to get along and just take shots at each other and, you know, and geek out. And then it's a lot, just a lot of fun and we have a good time. And we hope when people listen that they uh, have a good time too. And, you know, it, it means so much if somebody goes, you know what? I never thought about it that way. Or I never, you know, listened to that record that way or that movie that saw that that way. And if I get one person to listen to something for the first time or watch a movie for the first time, then I think I've done, uh, done my job and it makes me happy. Awesome. Any socials uh, we should uh, follow you through? Yes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at DockingBase77Pod, uh, Facebook at DockingBase77Podcast, and you can send us an email, DockingBase77Podcast at gmail.com. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for Dayton for joining us today. Please check out and follow the Docking Bay 77 podcast. Also, please take the time to follow, give us a review, and rate us at the All 80s Movies Podcast. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. And you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, we'll be discussing our 100th movie for this podcast. And we will be discussing The Terminator, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, and Michael Biehn. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. I guess I should have known from the beginning it was going to be one of those days. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Hi, I'm Dayton, the host of the Docking Bay 77 podcast. We talk about everything from Anthrax to the Muppets to West Side Story. All right, boys, buckle up, because we have hit the bottom <laughs> of the barrel. He slaughters all the Tuscan Raiders. The fact that she stays by his side, that, that tells me everything I need to know about these women that write letters to serial killers in prison. You know, it makes it made sense. You know, Mopey, young, sad, always dumped Tim. That was the theme song, you know? <laughs> when you listened, Tim, did you have the volume on? Or? Oh, God. Uh, the witches are definitely much more nightmare fuel. But the fact that they look like the Texas Chainsaw centerfolds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if Django Fett is so awesome he's hired to be cloned, why the hell isn't he doing the job? He's like, my Question. client's getting impatient. Well, man, what, you slack-ass mother? Why don't you do it? You know, you're just... <laughs> Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.